0: Amen. We're in John chapter 3 this morning. So, two weeks ago, we saw that there is no king but Christ, and Ken exposited the great coronation psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Last week, we were in Revelation chapter 21 to see what the kingdom of heaven was like, and we saw that there is no kingdom but heaven. We exposited Revelation 21 to see what the end result is for Christ's church today we will see that there is no way but redemption, which is a message I think, I think the modern world desperately needs to hear. If I ask you what it means to be religious, or if I ask anyone what it means to be religious, there are one of two things uh, most people would say, and they, and they go hand in hand, right? And they would say either, it means to believe a certain set of principles, right? To believe that Christ was raised from the dead. To believe that there is a God. And then to have certain practices, to meet together and do certain religious things and to be committed to those things and when someone says i'm not very religious today they don't usually mean that they don't believe in god when people say i'm not religious they usually mean i i don't i don't do religious practices I'm not a very ritualistic person is what they usually mean when they say they're not very religious and so as I walk through today's text John chapter 3 verses verses 19 through 21 um, I want to juxtapose worldly religion against godly biblical religion or with godly biblical religion. Um, when we think about religion, we often think about the things we are doing. And when someone says, man, you need to get into church, they're usually talking to someone who, who, doesn't, who doesn't act very decently, right? Oh, I can't believe you do that. That kind of, you need to get in church, bro, right? Or hey, preacher, you need to get that guy into church cuz he needs some he needs some real help. He doesn't lead that lead that great of a life. And I think we're going to see today that, you know, church is not about behavior modification. And the kingdom of heaven is not about it's actually not about our righteousness at all. Uh, it's it's about the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I want to make it clear from the outset here that the type of people we want in Douglas Reformed Church are not the types of people that are interested in modifying others' behavior, you know, primarily. Now, the gospel does modify us, but it does so from the inside out, right? we are not interested in people who just want to modify others' behavior or people who just get into church in order to modify their own behavior. We want people who, who recognize that... That God is just and the justifier, that He is the righteous one, He is the one to be glorified, that Christ is the one to be exalted, and that the Holy Spirit, that's where the power is, not in any of our actions or religious rituals. And I think here in John chapter three, Jesus is getting at that. Here in John chapter three, Jesus is talking with a Pharisee. <gasps> Jesus met with the Pharisee. He's talking with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus had some questions, came in the cover of night, and Jesus is teaching Nicodemus uh, three things up to this point, right? One, you must be born of the Spirit, born again, the second birth, spiritual birth. You must be born of the Spirit in order to even see the kingdom of heaven. It's the first thing Jesus taught Nicodemus. The second thing is that this is there's no physical birth, but it is a spiritual birth wrought in the Holy Spirit, who does what the Holy Spirit will. So this is by this is by the Holy Spirit's will. And the third thing is that whoever believes in Christ as king as a result of new spiritual birth so the new spiritual birth comes first and belief in Christ as lord and as king and as savior that that's a consequence of this new spiritual birth whoever believes in Christ as a result of this new spiritual birth will not perish but have everlasting life that is the promise and so already by the time we get to verse 17 we see that that this new spiritual birth leads to belief in Christ leads to eternal life and that eternal life is not just the product of someone mustering up the right words or the right thoughts or the right philosophies about Christ but it is a direct result of the work that only the Holy Spirit can do by the Holy Spirit's will because the Holy Spirit Is like the wind. No one can see where he is coming from. No one can see where he is where he is going. The Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit decides. The Holy Spirit affects a person's heart so much that that person desires Christ. And so this entire work depends on the Holy Spirit. Eternal life depends entirely on the work of the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit chooses to do. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to move in such a mighty way here in Douglas, Arizona, and in Cochise county and in the state of Arizona and nationwide, we we pray for another great awakening that only the Holy Spirit can bring. We get to John chapter three, starting in verse 17. And I'll read this, this entire passage, this pericope through verse 21, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse, uh, like, like we are in the habit of doing. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. This is the first idea John presents. And these are actually like Jesus having having a conversation with Nicodemus. That's where these words are coming from. And John's recording that in his gospel. This is the first idea we are presented with in this per- pericope. Like right after John says, eternal life, whoever believes has eternal life. Then he's explaining his like statement. So this is an explanation of the eternal life that, that Jesus gives. For God did not send his son into the world to judge The world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I find this to be a great encouragement and a great promise in scripture. Like Jesus in his incarnation, like in this Advent season, what we see described as the work of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself describing his own work. uh, This is not a work of condemnation. And this is not a work of judgmentalism. This is not a work of destruction. This is a work of renewal. This is a work of forgiveness. This is a work of salvation. This is is a work of redemption, of redeeming the world, all of creation. That's what this work is for. That's what Jesus came to do in his incarnation. Notice here in verse 17, for God did not send the son. There's a relationship here. and When we read the word God there, we should understand Jesus is talking about the Father. When we read the word Son, we should understand Jesus is talking about himself, right? The Father did not send the Son into the world to judge it. What is this about the Father sending the Son here? This is an odd concept because if both are God and, and if Christ is one with God and, and is God, like we read in John chapter 1, right? The very, that's how, that's where John begins in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning. And through the Word, everything was made and nothing has been made that was made without the Word, Jesus, the Son, and here he is incarnate because the father sent him that's the truth we learn we learn here and here we see the economy of the godhead the Trinity at work within creation, within the world. The Father sends the Son. And this is this is not the eternal subordination of the Son like we hear about in our day, but it does represent the eternal generation of the Son. And the fact that in the economy of God, God is always the one willing. The Father is always the one willing. The Father is always the one planning. The Father is, he, he's the one who has decided the matter of things and stuff, and time and the cosmos. God did not send His Son. The Son is, is always the one revealing the Father, always the one doing the Father's will. We read on more than one occasion in the Gospels that Jesus Christ is here to do the will of the Father and not His own will. Why? It's not that Jesus doesn't have a will. It's not that Jesus' will isn't one with the Father. This is a matter of the economy of the triune God. It's a matter of Trinity in the economy of God revealing the relationships within the Godhead. So in the economy of God revealing the, the, the transcendent God had something about God to us. The Son is always the one who reveals, and the Son is always the one who seeks to do the will of the Father. And the transcendence of God, we call this eternal generation, the eternal generation of the Son. This is the way the Reformers put it. This is the way the, the Church Fathers of old put it. This is the way St. Nicholas put it. Who was arguing against Arius? And guys like Saint Nicholas would would describe the triune God in this way, or the relationship between the Father and the Son this way. But to be begotten of God is not like like it is to be begotten of man. Begotten is not synonymous with created. See, as as finite human beings, there is a definite beginning to our lives. The moment we are conceived in the womb, our lives begin. That is when our soul, our spirit is created. That is when our bodies begin to form. That's when our brains begin to form. It's when we begin to develop emotions and go through these processes of, of physical and mental and emotional development right there from the moment of conception. There's something psychological about it too. Like even the mother undergoes a change in her body and in her mental processes. In her psyche. And those changes take place because her body is actually transforming a body within her. And the more and the more that baby grows within the womb, the more mature that baby becomes in the womb, the more development takes place, and there's a sanctity to human life there, but that life had a beginning, and physically that life will have an end. To be begotten of a human woman is to be like the one we are begotten by. If the one we are begotten by has a beginning to life and an end to physical life, so will we. It's, It's a matter of genetics, it's a matter of inheriting everything from our parents. But if God is infinite, the Father is infinite, he has no beginning, he has no end, he is timeless and eternal, I think we could say both of those things, then whatever is begotten of the Father is like the Father, no beginning, no end, eternal and timeless. That is what we mean by eternal generation. That's how the church fathers described it. This isn't a a begottenness like we experience it because God is not a human being. So we say that, that the son is begotten and not created. That he is begotten of the father, so he is like the father, which necessitates him being one with the father, with the father in the beginning, And the same as, the same substance as the Father. That is what eternal generation means. Which John got at in chapter 1, that's what he begins with in his gospel. The eternal generation of Christ. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Now the word used for world here cosmos can refer to three things in scripture it can refer to all the people living in the world it can refer to the universe itself or it can refer to the world apart from christ like worldly people worldly religion worldly nations worldly governments in this text i believe that world Refers to all the people living in the world. I believe it has application uh, specifically to the cosmos as well. So I, I think it can, I think it can apply to the cosmos, the universe at large. But just reading from chapter three, verse one, in context here, Jesus is talking about the salvation of people. He's talking about the giving of eternal life by the Spirit. The entire context here leads us to, just with the most natural reading of this verse, verse 17, read the world as just the people of the world, generically speaking. So God did not send his son into the world to judge the world here. The Greek word krino, which means to judge someone like in a law court setting. So you don't judge the universe in a law court setting, right? You judge people, you judge people in a law court setting. The universe itself does not have the ability to sin. It doesn't, doesn't have a will like we have, right? It doesn't have volition like people have. People have the ability to sin. So, so people are the ones under judgment here, not the universe itself. But the universe suffers the effects of human sin because people, read this in Genesis chapter 1, people were given the authority, the representative authority of God over the whole of creation, over the world, cosmos. But the Son did not come into the world. He was not sent into the world to judge the world like in a law court setting. He did not incarnate in order to offer a guilty verdict against humanity which I find to be very encouraging. I, I have sinned quite a bit in my life. In fact, I don't know one person who hasn't sinned quite a bit in their lives. I am thankful that Jesus did not come, was not incarnate in order to offer a guilty verdict. And by the way, if Jesus was sent into the world, that means he pre-existed his incarnation. Jesus existed before, otherwise he couldn't be sent. He would have just been born. But he was sent to inhabit human flesh, to be incarnate. But he didn't come to offer a guilty verdict against people in the world, generically speaking, the people of the world. But that the world, the people of the world, might, might be saved through him. That's interesting wording here in the Gospel of John, is it not? It doesn't say so that the world would be saved through him. It says might be saved through him. And there are some who are like, see, there's a proof right there. That people must come to Christ and that it is entirely possible for Christ to call someone into salvation and for that person to resist the grace of God and just walk and just walk away and not come into Christ. That's possible because it says might be saved through him. Look, this this is not a statement of possibility this isn't offering one possibility of two or three or four possibilities this is a statement of ability Like without Christ condescending, without the incarnation, no one can believe in God. No one can see the kingdom of heaven because there is no redemption price paid. This is a statement of ability so that the world, the people of the world would be able to be saved through Christ. Otherwise there is no chance that anyone could possibly be saved. So this is a statement of ability and not possibility. It makes it makes it makes possible, it makes able the redemption of the world, and for in a a law court setting for God to look at some and say, not guilty. So, there's something about the sacrifice of Christ, something about what Christ did at Calvary, something about Christ being incarnate, something about Christmas that makes it possible for human guilt to be removed. And that's why in verse 18 we read that he who believes in him is not judged. A guilty verdict is not offered against those who believe in Christ Jesus because Christ is the redemption. He is the salvation of the world. It is through him people are being saved. So we see the promise of John 3:16 repeated in verse 18. If anyone believes in Christ, there is no guilty verdict. Period. Doesn't matter what you've done or how you've lived, because because every person B.C. before Christ is pending a guilty verdict in a law court setting before the judgment throne of God no one could keep the law no one could keep the rules that god handed forth if religion is works-based if religion is about what we can do and how pious we can be and how ritualistic we can be we are self-condemning because we can't we all fall short of the glory of god period guilty verdicts but if we believe upon christ and have his righteousness imputed to us We will not receive that guilty verdict. Why? Because God is merciful. That's why, that's the only reason he is merciful and he is loving and he has chosen a people for himself. But look at the second part of verse 18. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Has been judged already. Well, why did Christ not come into the world to judge the world? Isn't, isn't that like a necessary component of setting up a, a kingdom to, to set up a just judicial system and to judge properly and to uh, punish criminals for their wrong acts against the king? Isn't that a, a great way to set up a kingdom? Um, yes. But notice the past tense here. They've been judged already that part of the work was already done when when was that part of the work done can i ask that when was when was the judgment part of god's work done completely finished judgment against the nations judgment against the world judgment against religion judgment against against the jews i think i think that was i think that was finished by the end of the old testament God gave the law. He gave nations hundreds and hundreds of years to repent. He predicted in the law that no one would be able to keep his righteous law, that no one would be able to achieve his righteousness by their actions, by their religion, by their ritual. He predicted that in the law when he gave the law to Moses. And in surprise, God was right. No one was able to do it, no matter how hard they tried. Even those who were the, the best at keeping the law like King Saul didn't achieve the righteousness of God and felt condemned before the, God, before the throne of God. Like the Pharisees in the Gospels who tried to keep every letter of the law, who tried to be righteous enough, who tried to achieve the glory of God by their actions. Who tried to to be ritualistic enough, who tried to bid the presence of God come by their actions, by their good deeds, by by their many words, their prayers, and yet could not. God's judgment had already already been, already befell mankind, remember it's kind of generic here it already befell mankind as humankind as a whole, such that every individual felt guilty every member of the human race felt guilty, could not keep God's law so the judgment was already done a popular theology today tells us the judgment is coming some point in the future and they get that from the book of Revelation, which, surprise, was also written by John, the same John who wrote this narrative, who gave this account. And here John is saying that this judgment it's it's already it's already it's already finished, it's already done. Now, if the judgment is already done, what does that mean for us living today? Well, it means we are we are in the time of chastening. We are in the the time of the actual building of God's kingdom. The world was condemned, and now Christ, the great intercessor, comes and frees us from the bondage of sin, frees his people from the bondage of sin, from the chains of darkness, takes their guilty verdict and dismisses that, and makes them innocent by the power of his blood. It means we are living in the time when Christ is separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the weeds, bringing his children into the light and away from the darkness, and leaving those who do not believe in him in the darkness outside the proverbial temple walls. And you hear all of that biblical language. And that's the narrative being told through scripture. It's just with this, with this neo-theology and popular theology we hear today, people are reserving all of that work for sometime in the future. And I, I want to make the case to know all of that is happening now. The judgment of nations is past. We are we are in the new covenant now, not the old. That work is finished. And Jesus even said so from the cross. It is finished, done. So he who does not believe has been judged already. That's why Christ came not to judge, but to save. Because this work of judgment is already done. and We all fall condemned. And so Christ is here to save some, save his people. But those who are judged already, they are judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This non-belief is evidence that they are not chosen people of God. As we saw earlier in John chapter 3, leading up to verse 16, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is first born of the Holy Spirit according to the Spirit's will. And those who are not born of the Spirit cannot truly believe And those who do not believe are judged already, past tense, because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God, because the Holy Spirit has not caused them to be born again. Verse 19, this is the judgment. He doesn't say, this is a judgment. He says, this is the judgment. This right here, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Men love the darkness, that's an all inclusive term. He doesn't say some men love the darkness and some love the light. It just says men love the darkness, which means which means I'm included in that. That means you're included in that. No matter how religious or righteous you think you are, no matter how ritualistic you are, even your good deeds are like filthy rags before God. Isaiah 64 verse 6. So men, all men, all people, loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Why do men whose deeds are evil, that's again, Isaiah 64, 6, even the things we think we do are good are like filthy rags before God. Like a bloody rag. Why would the fact that our deeds are evil Cause us to love the darkness rather than the light. But even if we think our deeds are good, wouldn't we still like want to come into the light and like accidentally have our deeds exposed as evil? Like that's not what we learn here. The reason we love the darkness is because we don't want to be revealed as the wretches we are. The reason we love the darkness is because if people can't see us can't see our hearts can't see our what we can't see what we think can't see what we do in secret if people can't see that stuff then it then maybe we can justify it you know in a dim lit room you can you can hide you can hide maybe a couple holes in the wall or scratches to the furniture in a dimly lit room and maybe that's the reason we as the human race, we like the proverbial dark so much because then our deeds won't be exposed for what they are. And our religion won't be exposed for what it is. And our politics won't be exposed for what they are. Our rituals won't be exposed as completely insignificant and unable to achieve the glory of God. Maybe that's why we love the darkness. And the fact that we love the darkness like that, that is the judgment according to John and according to Jesus. We love the darkness. That's a guilty verdict. And God is in the business of bringing all things into the light, which means all of my insufficiencies and all of my sins and all of my downfalls and everything that I try to justify within myself and all of my actions, God is exposing it for what it is. And that is scary. That's terrifying. God is a terrifying God. This is the condition of the flesh. This is the first birth that John was talking about here in John chapter 3. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh and darkness. Verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Again, the justification of self. The justification of my own religion or a type of religion that forces me to work off some kind of debt I owe to God or the type of ritual that seems pious enough to please God and to persuade God to come to me or get me to Him, to give me one step further on the ladder to heaven. But everyone who is interested in behavior modification as their church is living in darkness and doesn't know Christ. Everyone who buys into the so-called prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement, because that is just as works based as works based as, as things like Roman Catholicism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism. Those who buy into that sort of philosophy, it's that's a self-justifying type of faith. It is bigoted Christianity. And it is being resolved to stay in the darkness because we would hate for our deeds to be exposed for what they are. Even our religious and ritualistic deeds. But, but he who practices the truth, that's an interesting word. You mean... You mean like to be in Christ means I care about what the truth is, particularly here in context, the truth about the condition of my own heart and my own mind, depraved, wretched, sinful. He who practices the truth comes to the light, which is Jesus, so that his deeds may be Manifested, And the word exposed isn't used there. I mean, certainly it does expose one's works. But then we see here that the, his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. May be manifested. Again, not a statement of possibility, but ability. It is impossible for us to recognize our works as being wrought by God or recognize that the manifestation of our deeds is wrought in God. It's impossible for us to recognize that unless we are in Christ, unless we are in the light. But what does it even mean that our deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God, right? The, the wording there is so interesting. It's not just our deeds are wrought in God because that makes God a sinner, the direct, the direct agent who forces us into sin, right? And I don't think that's what's happening. I think John is using this wording very intentionally as, as he does the wording in the rest of his gospel. But that our deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In the garden of Eden God gave a rule to Adam and Eve which caused them to sin. God was fully aware of the nature he created in them. Fully aware of their of their depravity and their inability to live up to his glory. Yet he gave them a law. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. What do we read about the law God gave to Moses? It was given to increase the trespass. Like our deeds, our our terrible sinful deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God because God's the one who gave the law knowing that we would never be able to keep it. In fact, He predicted in the law that we would never be able to keep those rules. Why would God do that? Why? It just seems kind of mean. Yeah? But it is not mean tell me, fathers, do you ever give your children rules you know they will not keep? Yes. Why? Why do you do that? It's meant for their sanctification, discipleship within the household. I know you won't be able to do this right now, but son, by the time you turn 18... I don't want to have to have any rules for you. I want you to be able to make good decisions. So I'm giving you rules now I know you can't keep. I know you will disobey. So that you will be sanctified in Christ and grow into adulthood in a mature way. Right? So God does for His children. But God's law does something that our laws cannot. Shows us the depth of our depravity, our human condition, our inability, our wretchedness, our depravity. And unless we recognize that, we can't come into grace because we always believe that we can get there. And the giving of the law, a law God knew we could not keep, that's an act of grace in and of itself. And think about our trouble trying to please God. At the beginning of faith, when we are immature Christians, what is our automatic approach to the Christian faith? Oh, I have to try to keep all the rules now and live a perfect life now. Like, that's immature Christianity, but that's where we all start, right? That's it. I want to please God. I need to to do these works now. But as we mature, we become freer. And that tribulation of trying to keep the rules like gives us gives us exactly the suffering and the tribulation we need in this life to become mature Christians and to enjoy God forever, to enjoy him fully. So our deeds are, are manifest having been wrought in God. This word wrought means to have been brought about through great tribulation, through suffering. That's what wrought is. It doesn't just mean being accomplished by God. Like it's this like it's this easy thing and there's no suffering in life and, and life is super easy. God, I confess Christ as Lord, like why am I why am I now going through all this tribulation that I, I didn't seem like I was experiencing that before, but now like now like my heart is being wrestled with and, and my mind is is being engaged and the suffering of this world is really getting to me and all of a sudden there are wolves surrounding me and sometimes I feel like I'm so alone and being in this it's such a small congregation, we we just feel feel like there's no one else with us. Well, Scripture is honest about the tribulation of this life. There there are people just like they want to put off the judgment of Christ until some future date. They want to put off a tribulation until some future date. Brothers and sisters, we're walking through tribulation and persecution our brothers and sisters around the world walking through tribulation and persecution, and Scripture is honest about this. Why? So that his deeds may be manifested as being wrought, wrought in God through tribulation. Without tribulation, there is no sanctification. Why would we want to put that off and try to escape it with some kind of secret rapture? I don't think it works that way. It is wrought in God, which means it is not wrought in my own heart or of my own mind or with my own muster. I can't achieve the glory of God. So God, through tribulation for my life, tribulation for sanctification, because of his law, which increases the trespass and because of the current condition of the world as Christ is building his kingdom, he he is he is causing my heart to rend for Him through the suffering, through the pain of this life. And I can experience joy through that knowing that I am being prepared for the final commencement of His kingdom. Which will be amazing. This is a godless Godless religion focuses on actions and rituals that are produced by people. But religion that is wrought in God focuses on the work of Christ by the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And it it is humbling for us. Christmas time we really like to come up with every excuse to exalt ourselves and our own religion and our own ritual and our our own things that we do but coming around to this Advent season every year reminds us that Christ did not come in the flesh and not become incarnate merely to just get as many people to heaven as possible or to modify all of our behavior He wasn't going around to the Pharisees saying, hey, you need to keep the law a lot better than you are. No, his message to the Pharisees, probably the best ones at keeping the law, was the same as it was for everybody else repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is building his own kingdom. He he has established himself as king. He was coronated as king in his incarnation. He is building his kingdom, establishing his kingdom here on this earth. His kingdom is overtaking the world and he is doing so by way of by way of redemption. By his work. Not by ours. This, this is godly religion. This is biblical Christianity. In the face of everything else that is shoved in our face, this is biblical Christianity. not interested in mere behavior modification don't come to church if you're just trying to trying to correct some things you don't like about yourself or if you need a good counseling session like we are here to worship Christ as king and let him do his work in us and through us to be the hands and feet of Christ and I understand what that means for discipleship in the body of believers especially for a new congregation like this one it means things are gonna be messy It means this place is going to be full of sinners and wretches and people with tattoos and people who go out and smoke and drink and cuss. Come on. Come on in. Come and see that the Lord is good. It also means that those bigoted Christians are going to be all offended by us. That's fine. That's fine. Glory, glory to God in the highest. My favorite Christmas song. Glory to God in the highest. Peace upon the earth. Good will to people He favors. Oh, here is Messiah's birth. Amen, amen. Amen.